right, let's make sure that we have our Bibles out, open to the book of Leviticus. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you, and you are welcome to take that home if you would read it. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, if you've not spent much time there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And we're going to be in chapter 24 this morning in the verses that our sister Teresa just read for us. Uh, thank you, sisters, for reading scripture for us this morning. I know it's not easy to get up in front of a room full of people uh, and read God's word. So this morning's text can be broken up into two sections. If you're the kind of person who likes to you know, put things in brackets in your Bible, you could break it down as verses 1 through 4, that would be Aaron's duties involving the lampstand in the holy place in the tabernacle. The second section could also be verses 5 through 9, Aaron's responsibility involving the showbread in the tabernacle. Now, you could break down the text this way, but I'm going to argue this morning that you should not. Now, before I tell you why I think it would be a mistake to read these verses in that way, uh, let me explain the mechanics of these priestly responsibilities. So all the engineers in the room, when everyone else begins to go to sleep, this is your time. This is where you come to life, okay? The boring mechanics of it all. So first, the oil. In verse 2, God tells Moses to tell Aaron to tell the people, all right, y'all tracking? Tells Moses to tell Aaron to tell the people that they need to keep the tabernacle supplied with lamp oil. You can look there. Look at verse 2 again. Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. The reason why the oil has to be pure is because if it has impurities in it, it will mess with the lamp. It won't burn as bright as it possibly could. There's a lot that could be said about that, but we're not going to talk about that this morning. Now, verse 3 tells us that the arranging of the lampstand in the holy place was a daily duty for Aaron and then for all the subsequent high priests that were going to come after him. It doesn't say that, but by way of implication, we know that Aaron wasn't the last high priest. Okay, So this was the responsibility of the high priest. You can look there and see that as well. Outside the veil of the testimony, that's, remember, the veil that separates the most holy place from the holy place. In the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And when he says forever and throughout your generations, he means for as long as this covenant practice is carried out. We know, of course, that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and the temple was fulfilled in Christ. And so these practices no longer need to be carried out. But for as long as they did need to be, there needed to be a high priest checking on the lamp. Pretty straightforward. Nothing amazing here. Nothing complicated. Okay, the bread. The mechanics of the bread. The people of Israel had to not only supply the oil for the lampstands, but they also had to supply the flour for the bread. It had to be fine flour. Uh, I wouldn't look too much into that. What you see in these verses, though, is basically this. Uh, the people of Israel bring the priests the flour for the bread, and then the, the priests divide it up and measure it out, and then they actually bake the bread, and they would bake 12 loaves, 
And then they would divide those 12 loaves into two groups of six, and they would put that in the holy place. By the way, they would sprinkle a little bit of uh, frankincense on top of the bread, a little bit of uh, kind of like an ancient Near Eastern pesto to go with your bread there. Um, Thanks, sympathy laugh. I have that in my notes, by the way. I really thought that that would do better. Okay. Now, this happened once a week, every Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day, the priest would come in. They'd, you know, like, like bakers, get up early in the morning, take the bread, divide it up, cook it, put the frankincense on us, arrange it, and then they would change out the old bread, and then they would have that to eat, okay? Am I blowing your mind so far this morning? Is this the deep practical stuff that you came hoping to hear from God's word that'll change your life? Well, let me pray, and then we'll dive into the significance of this text. Father, you call us to be a holy people. We are not a holy people. But we know the way that you sanctify us. And help us to live in light of the holiness that you have granted to us in your son Jesus is by speaking to us in your word. When the God of all heaven and earth who speaks universes into existence, when he, you communicate with us, Lord, we know that we, your people, are changed by your word. So help us to receive it, God. Help us to not be distracted We know that the enemy wants to snatch away the word from our hearts. We pray that you would not let him do that this morning. We know that the fears and anxieties of life in this fallen world can crowd out our attention so that we can't focus on your word. We pray that you would prevent that this morning. Help us to be wholly engaged and focused with body, mind, and spirit. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in that super exciting introduction I just gave you, I told you that it would be a mistake to divide this text into two, two blocks, right? The, the bread and the oil. Well, now I'm going to tell you why. So we saw in verses 3 and 4 that Aaron was supposed to arrange the lampstand every morning. This was his gig. He got up, you know, did a little exercise, did his little devotional, okay? And then he would go in and he would arrange the lampstand. And that involved a bunch of different things. It involved cleaning the lampstand. As you can imagine, oil, you know, that could start to gunk up after a while. It involved making sure that it was full, that it was, it, the light was never supposed to go out, so you would want to make sure that the levels were always topped off. But it also, and most importantly, involved making sure that the lampstand was always facing forward always facing in the right direction. Now, this part of Aaron's duties is not elaborated on here in Leviticus, but you can see it elsewhere in the Pentateuch. You can see it in Numbers chapter 8. In Numbers 8, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And by the way, that's seven lamps. It's not like seven different lamps. The lamps, is, each lamp is like something that's on the lampstand. You've seen a menorah before. It's kind of like that, okay? So these seven lights on this one lampstand right, shall give light in front of the lampstand. 
And Aaron did so. He set up his lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. So this is one of his main duties. He had to make sure that the lampstand was facing forwards. Now, why is this so important? Why does God go out of his way to tell Aaron that this is a very big responsibility for you as a priest? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to know what was in front of the lampstand. What was the lamp supposed to be illuminating? Well, that was the showbread. So let me show you a slide on the screen. Cody, are you up there, buddy? Can we pull, did the power thing mess us up or can we pull it up? We lost the chart. All right. Well, oh man, I was relying on that. Basically, when you look inside the Holy of Holies, okay, when you, the Holy, excuse me, the, the most holy place. No, that's the Holy of Holies too. The slide is messing me up. Come on. Okay. You have the Holy of Holies, and then when you come outside of the curtain, you have the holy place, okay? Now, you have the incense, the pot of incense right here, and then you have the lampstand on the east wall, and then on the west wall in front of the lampstand, you have the showbread. Did I do that? Is that as good as a picture? I think so. I'm, I, was, I had a, all my eggs in the picture basket. Okay. So the point, simple enough, is that the light had to shine on the bread. Well, now why is that such a big deal? Well, you stop for a second and you remember what we studied earlier in the book of Leviticus. We saw that there's nothing in this tabernacle that is without symbolism. Everything in the tabernacle is set up just so. God designed it this way for a reason. There's nothing arbitrary. This is why God told Moses twice back in Exodus 25 to set up everything in the tabernacle exactly like I'm telling you. So we read in Exodus 25, 9, make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. In Exodus 25, 40, See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And the mountain was when Moses was up there receiving this revelation from the Lord. Now, God doesn't want everything to be just right in the tabernacle because he's concerned with the feng shui of the room. Or he doesn't want it to be this way because he's like a micromanaging interior designer kind of God. No, he wants it exactly according to his design because his design is intended to communicate something to his people. Well, okay, what is the light shining on the bread supposed to communicate? Well, first let's think about the bread. What does this bread symbolize as it sits there in the tabernacle? Well, the answer is it symbolizes the people of Israel. You can know that this is what is symbolized in a couple of different ways. For example, the number 12 is pretty significant, okay? The number 12 represents the people of Israel from the very beginning pages of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. You even saw it in the scripture that we just read together from Revelation. There's the 12 foundations of the temple in heaven, and that's supposed to represent the apostles. And of course, the 12 apostles were 12 because they were supposed to be the new covenant administration of the old covenant tribe. You can kind of trace that theme all the way throughout the Old Testament. But there's something else here, another clue that's a little bit closer to the text that can tell you that the bread is supposed to symbolize the nation of Israel. It's the fact that the bread is divided up into two piles of six. That's pretty significant. 
Now, if you're like me and you didn't grow up just reading gobs and gobs of the Bible and you haven't spent a bunch of time in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, stuff like this may not matter to you, it may not be significant, but dividing the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, into two groups of six was very common in the Old Testament. There are five or six different places that I can show you, but I want to show you just one place that's really close to home, in Exodus, when God was telling Moses how the the ornate garb of the priesthood was supposed to be designed, he said this about the shoulder pieces of the high priest. He says, take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. The sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Six names on one stone. The remaining six names on the other stone. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. And then mount the stones in gold filigree settings. So the priest, as he stands there with all of his ornate garb, the head all the way down to the shoe, six names of the tribes of Israel on his left shoulder, six names of the tribes of Israel on his right shoulder. And you see this kind of two-part division of the 12 tribes all throughout the Old Testament. Okay, what does the lamp symbolize with its light well throughout all the pages of scripture light and fire is always representative of God and the presence of his glory so you can see that if you just stay right in the Pentateuch obviously God leads his people throughout the desert with a pillar of fire right and that fire is his presence you can go to an easier verse 1 John 1 5 God is light Psalm 44.3 talks about the light of God's presence. Listen to the wording. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence are with me. You can hear the same language in Ezekiel 43. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with the light of his glory. On top of that, lampstands, which hold the light, hold the fire, are often connected with the Lord's presence in Scripture, outside of our verse this morning. So, Revelation 2.5, for example, the Lord is warning the church in Ephesus that they are on shaky ground. They're not walking with him as they're supposed to be, and he promises that he will remove their lampstand if they don't repent. What does that mean? He's saying, I'm going to remove my presence from among you. You claim to be a church under the authority of my name, but you're not living like it. Now you are a church, and my presence is with you because you're a church, but I'm about to remove my presence. And the way that he talks about that is taking away the lampstand. Finally, you can just see in the closing pages of Scripture that Jesus himself is called a lampstand for the nations. He is the light of the nations. We read that in Revelation 21 this morning. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So I think it's safe to say, one, that the lampstand and its light symbolize God and his holy presence. And then number two, that the showbread 
symbolizes Israel, the holy people of God. Now let me tell you how this fits together. I'm about to give you a little late in the sermon, but the thesis statement of the sermon. I'm going to show you why these two things belong together. This morning's text is teaching us this. The lampstand shining its light on the showbread is a picture of God's everlasting light shining down on his holy people as they live continuously in the presence of his glory. The lampstand shining its light on the showbread is not by accident. It's designed this way. God wants it just so because he's trying to communicate. What does he want to communicate? He wants to communicate his everlasting light shining down on his holy people as they live continuously in his presence. Now, this seems like a bit of a stretch just from these nine verses. And I haven't, if I haven't really convinced you with what I've shown you so far, there's more, okay? Uh, I think that this is right in line with the meaning of the design of the holy place. Do you remember how the author of Hebrews, members of this church when we went through Hebrews in chapter 8, do you remember how he talked about the sanctuary in the tabernacle? He says this. He says that the priests, quote, serve at a sanctuary, that's what we're talking about this morning, this is in the sanctuary, that is a copy and shadow of that which is in heaven. So this lampstand, the showbread, the incense, everything that's happening here in the holy place, this is supposed to be a shadow of heaven. This is what heaven will be like. In heaven, the people of God will live in the house of God and bask in the light of the glory of God forever. And this light will not be veiled to us. It will come to us unfiltered in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember again the words of Hebrews. We are told that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The way that God will manifest his glory to us forever is in the shining light of his son Jesus as he illuminates the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 22.5 tells us that in heaven there will be no more night They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. You remember how we were supposed to reign in the Garden of Eden? You remember that? God created us to be kings and queens on the earth, and then we traded it for sin and brokenness and ruin? The promise is that God is going to come back and restore us, and we're going to reign in his light This is the promise of our eternity. But there's more. If you go back and you study the holy place more in depth by reading various places in the Pentateuch, you'll see that the walls of the sanctuary were overlaid with gold. Not only so, but the lampstands were made of gold. Not only so, but you'll find that the bread upon which the bread was, excuse me, the table upon which the bread was placed was overlaid with gold. This room was designed by God to radiate the light of the seven lamps so that it would be brilliant to the max for those who would behold it. 
There's supposed to be a light that's present in the room, but the room is designed in such a way so that the light is magnified beyond what it could normally be by itself, according to the human eye. There's supposed to be a magnification of glory in this room. And this, too, is a picture of heaven, where the glory of Christ will be reflected and it will be brilliant and it will fill every nook and cranny of the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't it funny now that whenever you find a nook or a cranny, it's filled with darkness? That's not how it's going to be in heaven. When, uh, when I was a missionary, we had a little old lady in the church uh, who had become a Christian later in life. And uh, she had heard things, a lot of things, you know, about uh, heaven from missionaries who had come before me. And one of the things that she heard was that the streets of heaven would be paved with gold. Now, she asked me if that was true. I'm here to tell you, I don't think I did a good job responding to that. If you know me, you can probably guess how I responded. Well, actually, right? theologically speaking, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us that. And why would there be roads in heaven? And if there were roads in heaven, why would they be covered with gold? And I was very sweet, and I talked to her like I might talk to a grandma. But still, the way that I responded to her was just not great. I wish I just would have told her what I'm telling you this morning. I wish I just would have told her, I don't care if there are roads in heaven. I don't care if the roads are paved with gold. I'm here to tell you that heaven will be luminescent with the glory of God. And maybe it'll be gold and maybe it won't. But it will be amazing. When we stop and consider what a glorious vision we have in God's word for our future. It really should lead us to pity the abysmal hopelessness that is materialism, that is atheism, and other similar philosophies. According to these philosophies, the only light that awaits man in eternity is the light of the heat death of the universe. Either that or there's going to be a bright flash in the back of your brain when your central nervous system shuts off the day that you die, whichever one comes first. But the sweet promise of the gospel for those who receive Christ is that the light that we see will be a light everlasting. It will be a life-giving light. It will be a joyful light. It will be a rest-giving light. It will be the light like the sun on the first day of spring after a brutal winter of bone-chilling cold. And it's going to be like that beautiful first day of spring forever. But there is an equal, if not terrible, promise concerning light in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this promise is for those who reject Christ. Paul describes that promise like this. There will be a day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. According to Paul, those who do not know Jesus, those who do not obey Jesus, will also see a light. But that light will be the light of a flaming fire, of an all-consuming wrath from a holy and righteous God. When they see God's light, shining in all of its brilliance, they will not rejoice like we will rejoice. They will shudder and they will know nothing but terror. They will fear his presence and not delight in it. And then after they're judged, they will never see light again. The punishment the promise of punishment for those who don't know Christ is that they will be shut out from the glorious light of his presence forever. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not obeying the gospel, if you have not submitted to God and his perfect love for your soul, I don't want this for you. I don't want you to be shut out from the sweetest thing that can possibly happen to your soul. But I can't want you to want the light if you don't want the light. Jesus has already told us that most men do not want the light. In John 3, Jesus says, light has come into the world. And you would think that the response to that light for people who have been suffering in the brokenness of the darkness would be jubilant celebration. You think we would just be over the hills. We would get a little taste of the light and we would say, oh, thank God. Thank God that the light has come. But Jesus says that the opposite is true. He says men don't love the light. Men aren't drawn to the light. They don't want the light. Jesus says people loved the darkness instead of light. Why? Well, he tells us. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden after they've come into an understanding about their guilt before a holy God. Sinful man hides from the light. We hide because we know that his light will lay us bare. We hide because we know that we'll be exposed. We hide because we know it's going to hurt. But it doesn't have to. Because the gospel tells us that God loves us even when we are laid bare before his holy presence. Friends, we fear being exposed by God because we are so ignorant as to believe that he doesn't see us in our sin right now. And he does. He 
He sees every last ounce of your sinfulness, every last drop of your brokenness, all of your imperfections, all of your wickedness. He sees it all. He knows it all. You haven't hidden any of it from his all-discerning eye. So don't be afraid to let the light expose you. You are already exposed. You just don't know it. But with exposure comes the promise of salvation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for God, who said light, who said let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that is what has happened to you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that can happen for you. If you want to know more about what that means, please come find me or anyone else who's a member of this church after this service and talk with us. At the beginning of our members meeting, every members meeting that we have in this church, we read 1 Peter 2.9. Let me read it for you now and see how it strikes you in light of what we've seen today. Peter telling the church this about themselves. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, if you have been drawn into the light of God's glory, your purpose after being drawn is to not sit there and cover up your light. It's to let your light shine. It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who drew you out of the darkness. You know, we sing that song, you know, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. You know, we look at that and we think, oh, that's a cute little kid song that they can sing in gospel kids or at like a little church camp. Isn't it funny how profound children's songs and children's stories can be. We are called to let our light shine. This is not easy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that we have a major hindrance in our task of proclaiming the excellencies of the light of the glory of Christ. He says it like this, The God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So when you're talking to your coworker or your friend or your neighbor and your family member and you're trying to say everything just right and you're trying to be faithful in the way you communicate the gospel and you're trying to live out the gospel in such a way that validates the words that you're saying so that they might receive what you have for them, and then they still reject you. You should know that in some sense, maybe it is because you said something wrong or you're a hypocrite or something like that, but you can do everything right and they can still reject what you're saying because Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers from receiving the light of Christ. And to make matters worse, we often contribute to that. We often lock arms with Satan. We are often partners in this act of obstruction. Paul tells us in Ephesians to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
It is so often the case that we as Christians partner with darkness rather than exposing it to the light. We're like Satan's right-hand man. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer should be none. Unfortunately, in practice, that is all too often not the case. We, as those who profess to have the light, often partner with darkness. Friends, this is why church membership is so important. This is how we make sure that we are all walking in the light even as he is in the light. Mutual love and accountability. It's very difficult to proclaim the glories of God's light when you yourself are walking in darkness. So I want to remind every Christian this morning about the reality of your soul if you are a Christian. And I'm going to do that just by repeating what God has already said about you. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. If we've been delivered from one domain to another, then we have to live like it. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I know it's hard. As a pastor, I'm not exempt to the darkness creeping back in my life. Ask my wife. Ask the members of this church. Ephesians 6.12 talks about our spiritual warfare, again, using the language of light and darkness. The apostle says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, the darkness does not want to let us go. The darkness does not want to see us draw the nations into the lampstand of God's presence or the light of the lampstand of God's presence. And if we are not diligent, we will find ourselves drifting out of the light we will find darkness overtaking us in our lives. Little sins will turn into big sins. Small compromises will turn into a shipwrecked faith. Paul tells the Ephesians to walk in the light on purpose. Living in the light does not happen by accident. It requires intentionality and a whole lot of grace to empower our efforts. But brothers and sisters, even as I am out of one side of my mouth calling you to fight and to be diligent and to pursue the light and to fight hard against the darkness, I am also telling you that one day you will no longer have to fight at all. One day, we will all, with the rest of God's people, be able to rest in the light of the glory of God's presence and his perfect peace forever. Let's pray. Lord, we're desperate 
to look beyond this fallen world. We need you to keep our gaze, our attention, our focus on you and on your son. We need to keep our eyes lifted towards heaven. We praise you because this morning you have lifted our eyes towards heaven. You have redirected our attention towards eternity. And so, Father, we praise you for doing that. We thank you so much. And we pray that this grace that you've given us this morning will sustain us as we go back out into a world of darkness. We pray that we would be faithful as your witnesses and that you would bless us. In your son's name, amen.